The press tour for the next season of Doctor Who continues very, very slowly. <sighs> so we brought in Riley Silverman for a chat. We dive into our complicated love for River Song. It's another problematic fave on this week's edition of This Week in Time Travel. The original title for this podcast was going to be A Slow-Moving Apocalypse. Thankfully, I think the hurricane has passed chip by. The way the storm track went, it was like it went out of its way to avoid my particular city. Unfortunately, the coastal Carolina communities did not come off that well at all. And if you have any interest in supporting them, there's always the American Red Cross's Hurricane Florence Relief and other opportunities. We got hit pretty bad, but not as bad as we could have been. So we'll take our small mercies where we can get them. Absolutely. Speaking of small mercies, it is less than a month until we get new episodes of Doctor Who with our new doctor, Jodie Whittaker, and yet we still don't know exactly what time. Alas, we know it's going to be simulcast for the first story, but when exactly? I need to put this on my calendar. I need to tell people not to talk to me during that time. There's been a couple of nice little things that have come out in the news that make me feel just really, really good about the whole Jodie Whittaker thing, not the least of which, the LA Times Fall TV Preview. I know it's 2018. I know newspapers and formal media reviewers are so 20th century, but come on. For the LA Times to declare that Jodie Whittaker is one of like five or six faces to watch in the upcoming TV season alongside other stars on the verge of the breakout, as they put it, that's actually kind of exciting. And that's actually really good for Doctor Who, because as long running and as critically acclaimed as it is, Doctor Who kind of sort of gets overlooked and pushed to the side because it's that show that's been going on forever and will probably continue going on forever. So the fact that People are really making a note to put it on watch lists and say, yes, we know you know about Doctor Who, but you really want to watch this season of Doctor Who is very, very good. And she's in great company, too. The other stars include somebody that I'm a fan of, whose most recent Netflix special is just hilarious, Hassan Minaj. So... I love that Doctor Who is getting mainstream recognition, and I love it more that Jodie Whittaker is getting mainstream recognition right out of the gate. I'm reminded of all those wonderful feels from San Diego Comic-Con. And speaking of that, Chris Chibnall is on his own press tour as well. And amazingly, he does say things to some people about the upcoming season of Doctor Who. He confirmed to Digital Spy that the first drafts of the new seasons of scripts were written for a male doctor before the writers knew who the actor was. And frankly, that doesn't surprise me. It's fairly common that the writers are writing scripts for Doctor Who before they know who the actor is going to be. Uh, you write the script for the doctor, and then it's the actor who puts a little bit of their personal spin on it. So previous writers and actors have told us. Uh, so it's not terribly surprising. The only thing really that would need to change is some of the pronoun usage. So it's nice to know that they are really writing the doctor as if it's just the doctor and without special considerations. Maybe a little bit of special consideration. Uh, Chibnall did allow that some of the historical stories would have to recontextualize a little bit. But he did say that for the most part, these scripts 
survived, you know, with the most minor of changes as a result of knowing who the actor is. And you know that, you know, they did make minor changes. You know, I'm sure they wrote some of the series two scripts with Eccleston in mind and then tweaked him a little bit for Tennant and things like that. But this is not a woman doctor. This is the doctor, you know? Yep. So really should just continue to be the same character uh, with only minor tweaks as the actor puts their own spin on the role. The Hollywood Reporter has some exclusive pages from the 13th Doctor issue zero from Titan Comics, and they look great. The art is just lovely. I especially love this. Two different artists have two different takes on the moment of regeneration from Twice Upon a Time. On that page of the 13th Doctor just sort of standing there, smoking a little bit after the explosive regeneration, there's a highlight quote. We don't know who the narrator is saying in the captions on that page, but the captions, I think, are really important. Quote, people are going to call you 13, the 13th Doctor. You're not, but that's what they'll call you, those in the know. Of course, 13 used to be the end, the limit, didn't it? How times change. Quoted for truth. Absolutely. You know, I kind of have a suspicion that it's the 12th Doctor, like it's a hidden continuation of the speech that he was giving his successor before he regenerates, but... Oh, good thought. You know, I'll, I'll wait to be surprised. Uh, the other thing I really like about this is it sort of uh, speaks to there's been a bit of controversy in some fandom circles. The advertisements for the reveal of the 13th Doctor and everything that's come since then, they have referred to Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor and not the Doctor. And there's a bit of back and forth that, you know, no, she's just the doctor. And this quote actually kind of uh, speaks to that. I think it really does. I think, you know, I get that a lot. And I really understand, you know, we should be calling her the doctor, not the 13th doctor. And there does seem to be something slightly different about it. But it reads to me as sort of a marketing ploy of they are emphasizing that she is a part of a continuity, that she is one in a line. And I think this this speaks to me on that. I don't know. It's not really a hill in which I've planted my flag. Uh, no, me neither. So I could I could really go either way on it. But it's uh, it, I think it's kind of touching the way it's addressed here. We did say last week on This Week in Time Travel that Australia was getting a theatrical premiere. And now the same is true for the U.S. Fathom Events is going to be hosting a theatrical premiere for The Woman Who Fell to Earth. That is going to be in American theaters on October 10th and 11th with all of the features that the Australians are about to get. And now our poor friends in Canada have to sit and twiddle their thumbs and wait for their own date. We're sorry, Canadians. Really. You'll get it there eventually. But hey, how about that free health care you all have? Between our original recording of this episode and our release, we had another public relations coup for Team Doctor Who. The New York Times, the paper of record, gave some premium coverage to Jodie Whittaker in a substantial piece that's as good an introduction to Doctor Who for Times readers as you could hope for. And the Radio Times, in a free article and behind the paywall, revealed the second episode title, 
guest stars, and a whole lot of names of creatures, places, and locations that we will encounter, but no idea what any of them actually mean. Expect a lot more revelations in advance of, or contained in, Thursday's issue of Doctor Who magazine. And finally, Christopher Eccleston is going to have a memoir coming out soon, which should be touching on his time as the Ninth Doctor, but focusing more broadly on his acting career and the loss of his father. I'm fascinated by this. I'm going to pick up a copy because I want to know more about Christopher Eccleston, the actor. I know that it was a difficult time on the set uh, and that he has been more vocal in recent months about how unhappy he was still proud of the work that he was doing, but unhappy as part of the, I guess he might call it the Doctor Who machine. I kind of hate it when mom and dad fight. I want to think that everybody who makes my favorite show gets along well and stuff like that, but I'm still interested in learning more. Christopher Eccleston, if he had been a bad doctor, Doctor Who would have been dead on arrival. And the contribution that he made, you know, he was instantly credible. He was instantly fascinating. He was instantly fantastic. You know, I want to find out more about what makes him tick. He speaks so thoughtfully and so eloquently that when he does talk about his time on Doctor Who, it doesn't feel off the cuff or petty. It feels like things that, you know, he's thought deeply about for a while. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what he finally does say about his time on the show. So that's it for the news this week. We're going to take a quick moment here. And then when we come back, Riley Silverman and I will be sitting down to talk about our favorite problematic fave, River Song. This week on The Incomparable Network. Jason and company are dipping back into the world of anime with 1997's Princess Mononoke on The Incomparable. Quinn Rose and Brian Hamilton look back at midnight screenings, yelling back at actors in fishnet stockings. It's the Rocky Horror Picture Show on Corner of the Sky. And don't forget Earp Chirp, a weekly celebration of Canada's own Winona Earp. All this and more at theincomparable.com. We're back now for a continuation of our Problematic Fave series. And joining us for the most recent installment of this is our friend, comedian, and Doctor Who commentator, Riley Silverman. Riley, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. So when we asked you to think about your Doctor Who problematic fave, your mind went almost immediately to our lovely, complicated character, River Song. Yes, exactly. So tell me a little bit about what makes her a fave of yours? What draws you to the character? Well, I think that if there's anybody on the show, I'm not I'm not a diehard shipper in general. Like, it's not how I tend to approach most of my media. But if there's anyone on Doctor Who that I ship, I definitely have a bit of a Doctor River Shipper vibe to me. And I, I found that out for myself as I started, I caught myself watching several fan vids in a row of their relationship. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm shipping them hard. And I didn't even realize how much I was shipping them hard until I was watching it. And I think that for me, what it boils down to is that as someone who has gone through a transition, and so someone who has like looked very different and has whose appearance has changed dramatically over the course of several years, I think there's something to me about this relationship between these two characters as someone who loves this person 
and it has nothing to do with how they appear or how they look because like she sees the doctor underneath his or her layers and sees them for the person they are and like their whole thing as opposed to just like this is what their face looks like it's kind of that uh enduring story that it's really just the core of the person that's what draws you to them but also i think correct me if i'm wrong here it sounds like you're also saying the love for the person no matter what that they can change but still be willing to love them for everything yeah i mean there's obviously limits to that as much as we like to think that like uncompromised love is like the ideal obviously if someone turned cruel or someone turned right. malicious then you wouldn't still love them and i think i think that river would probably lose some of her love for the doctor if the doctor like if she met the valyard for example she might feel a little less of that love like it wouldn't be everything but the doctor being him or her as they present themselves and in, in, in that we've followed as the hero of the show that i think she she can see that and who the doctor is despite what the doctor's face looks like you know, I think that's one River Song doctor pairing that we haven't seen Big Finish approach yet. So uh, copyright yeah. that and make sure uh, that they know that this idea originated with you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> if I got credited for writing a Big Finish script, I think I could just like hang up my hat. I mean, I wouldn't, but I could. I could hang up the hat. <laughs> and then... So, of course, this is a series about problematic faves and problematic is a portion of that. So tell us a little bit about... What are some of your complicated feelings about River? Where do you have any hesitation around her character? Well, I think that the most obvious one is that, strangely enough, even though we see her for several seasons, she is essentially introduced to us as a fridged character. Mm -hmm. Like, she, she's a rare character whose fridging happens at the beginning of her development versus at the end of it. But that's how we meet her. We meet her as this perfect companion for the doctor who arrives in love with him. And it has this, and it, it, it's a story that I actually like, but I think that it, that's why it's complicated because I actually find it fascinating that he would like meet her on the last day that he gets to know her, you know, but at the same time, it it is, she's a fridged character. The very first thing that happens with her is that she dies to save him and, and add pathos to his story, you know? Yeah, well, especially because that pathos doesn't end in that episode. It colors basically their entire relationship moving forward, that it's always around this feeling that he has around her loss and whatever part he feels he contributed to that. Absolutely. And the only thing for me that kind of gives me a little bit of like acceptance of that as a viewer is the fact that when she meets the end of her life, and he offers to like go, well, I'll just do it differently. I will not, you know, I will, I will, uh, I won't meet you. I won't go with you. And that way you survive. And she's like, she has that choice of like, don't you dare. Like I am choosing this fate for myself and you can't take it away from me. Agency and river is always a really complicated thing. Uh, that to me is, is really where I kind of drawn her being a problematic fave because there's so many of these great moments where she claims her agency and says you may know something about my life but you must let me choose this for myself but it also kind of feels complicated by the fact that they're living their life in the wrong order and so much of river's life has sort of just 
been determined by things outside of herself, by whether people can use her to harm the doctor or the doctor has done something to set her life on a specific course. I find it very difficult to parse out the moments where it really feels like River has agency of her own and where something isn't being manipulated around her. Yeah, I think that's kind of what you fall into in general when you start having time travel-based romances. I think that I actually wrote a piece for Sci-Fi Wire about the ethics of of romantic time travel, and I didn't use Doctor Who on purpose because I, I had I, I was getting too wordy, and so I but I I talked about Groundhog Day and the movie about time, and then the one that came out on Netflix earlier this year, the one that's like the the first time we met or when we first met or something like that, and it's a lot of like a male character going back and like reliving a specific moment over and over again in order to like perfectly win over the woman that he's falling for. And what does that say about that woman's agency and river? The doctor doesn't repeat moments with river per se, but the doctor does experience river in a timeline. That's not his timeline or or not her timeline. So like he meets a past version of her and he knows what her future self is interested in. So he, it, like, it's a, it's a grandfather paradox, right? Like, it, does she have this fanaticism of the doctor because she does or because he left her this diary and say, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. And how much are they like driving each other towards each other? You know, you can say so much of River's life is determined by the doctor, but alternately she enters his life at a point and sort of sets him up for being, you know, for revolving his life around her for a period of time. Oh yeah, Um, sure. So, but it, it, I think becomes more complicated when you have, you know, all of season six, like I'm trying to figure out like an episode, but it's basically so much of her life gets very kind of horribly traumatically tied around the doctor's life. She never really has a point in her life that isn't defined by him, except for possibly that gap in between, like, I'm trying to think of, like, last time we see her in her own continuity before Husband's River Song. And I think it might be, it might even be the Angels episode, Mm -hmm. the uh, Angels in in Manhattan, because if if I recall correctly, the vision of her in the name of the Doctor is her brain still inside the library. Yeah. So that might be the latest point in her timeline that we experience her, but the latest, but like the time that she's still alive in between. So I think that's the furthest forward she is. And it does seem like there is like a long gap in time between the end of Angels Take Manhattan and the, and Hunters River Song. Cause she's like kind of had these adventures without him at this point. But part yeah. of the frustration with her is like, and fascination that i have with her as well at the same time is not exactly knowing what her time like i've watched so many youtube videos that try to reconstruct river's timeline from the like childhood up until she dies but what i do know is that like she's created for the sole purpose of killing the doctor she's raised by this this church of the silence for the whole purpose of killing the doctor she's left abandoned on earth as a child because of the doctor and then she goes and finds amy and rory and spends time with them because they're her parents but also because she knows that they'll lead her to the doctor so yeah it's it's not unlike time traveler's wife where you're like wait so does this person ever have agency because her entire life is her being groomed for this person Exactly. I think for me, one of the things that slightly 
redeems it seems too strong of a word, but something that at least helps me accept it is the Husbands of River Song, where she finally gets to comment on that and really make a note of what is your entire life like where the person that you love the most, who most defines your life, gives you a diary that seems to indicate you're determined and set a time to be alive. And how does that make you as an individual feel that this you know, there is somebody who knows just the most disturbing, complete details of your life. And what does that do to a person? What is that kind of relationship like? You know, at least it feels maybe if not quite reclaiming agency, but at least reclaiming the narrative of being able to say, I know this is what my life is like, but I'm not going to make it look like all sunshines and rainbows. I'm going to expose sort of the crueler, darker parts of this. Yeah, I think that only nails it. Like, like River is such a complicated character, and she is so in control of herself when she's doing things aside from this particular aspect of her life that that's why, like, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that that doesn't necessarily de- redeem it, but it kind of at least gives her the idea that she has some agency when we're watching her. And she's just so brilliant. It's hard not to love her as she's doing things. Well, Alex Kingston is so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a lot of it is just the the charisma of the actress is so good. I mean, it's hard not to watch Alex Kingston and not fall in love with her and everything that she's doing. Yeah. She's about to be a lesbian witch in A Discovery of Witches. And this is going to like really just I'm I'm going to I can't even say a complete sentence at the moment. Just like this is going to be a lot for me and I don't know I'll be able to handle it. Yeah, I, I I didn't get the tweet out in time when that announced, and I was like, when they said uh, River Song is going to be a lesbian witch, I was like, she was already a lesbian witch. She turned her husband into a wife. <laughs> See, this is the only character that I want to make a recurring character from Moffat's time. Like, I need to see Jodie Whittaker stalked her with River Song. Like, it just needs to happen. Yeah, I really want to see it too. I have a feeling we won't ever see it. I have a feeling that we it may, we may hear it someday as a big finish audio, or we may see her come back in a some sort of like anniversary special with like a multi doctor storyline that with River Song involved. I have a feeling that Chibnall's drawing a pretty hard line of not bringing back the Moffat era stuff. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to start pretty fresh, but I also like as someone who loves River and the Doctor. As much as I like all that, I also really, really love the bookend of Husbands. Like, I know that originally that was going to be Moffat's departure episode before he decided to come back for Series 10 to give time for Chibnall to take over. And I'm glad we got Series 10 because I love Bill so much. And Series 10 was so phenomenal. Like, so many great episodes in that run. But to me, Husbands felt like such a perfect closing of a book of the narrative that Moffat had brought to the series. Because when you think about it, like River was the very first plot detail he brought in because he wrote that episode, that, that two-parter during Russell's last season. And that was like Moffat's like kind of like putting seeds in for his era. Mm-hmm. And that's how we began with it. So to end it with her and saying goodbye and knowing that that episode was going to end and then she was going to go back to the library was like, oh, that's so perfectly looped. And for a character that is so often mired in plot holes and like <laughs> frustrating timelines to go, oh, this actually goes in very cleanly, even if it takes a little bit of pathos out that they spent 26 years together on this planet, which is great and wonderful, but also like, ah, all right, at the same time. The longest honeymoon ever. Yeah, exactly. But although that did lead to um, 
our friend Paul Cornell wrote the book adaptation of Twice Upon a Time, and he put in this really sweet note of part of why 12 doesn't want to regenerate at the end is because this is the doctor who actually kind of had like a real life. Like this doctor got to spend time with River for decades. And so for him, like wanting to regenerate feels like kind of abandoning this life that he lived. And that was really like kind of sweet. And I'm like, oh, what a thing that I wouldn't have thought of. And what a cool little thing to, to be able to stick into this book because of that. Yeah, I mean, River and the Doctor's relationship is so often defined by, like, loss and missed opportunities. This is the Doctor that really actually gets to enjoy his marriage to River Song, that he gets to settle in it and really have a life. And, oh, God, now I now I want fanfic of that time, because nobody's going to write the story of 26 years of the Doctor and River put living together and put it on Big Finish, but dang it, I want it. Yeah, I would. I almost want just to be like a Howard's End type, just like a like a, just like a. a sw- I don't know how Howard's End what I picked, but like a very just like almost like Victorian era novel, novel, or like a, a maybe more like Pride and Prejudice or something. But I just want Doctor and River living a quiet, silly life together on this planet and just being in love. Yes, that would be just ideal. That would be perfect. Yeah. But yeah, but because that worked out so well, I, I almost, even as someone who loves River, kind of hope that that's kind I, I love Alex, and I would like to see Alex do anything she wants to do. And I would love to see Alex and Jody play off each other as the Doctor and River. But at the same time, I also really like where that leaves the story, as it is. Exactly. You know, it, River is such a controversial conflicted character in fandom because she does have some some issues with her character and yet she is still just one of the most popular characters that we do see for you how do you sort of balance those conflicted feelings with river that you can both acknowledge the flaws that might exist with how her character has been presented in the show versus how much you love her and what you feel are her most wonderful redeeming qualities. I I think for me, what it comes down to is that I like it when a character is complicated and isn't a hundred percent likable, even if it's because of the writing versus like the actual character's behavior, those are still, it still makes her complicated, which makes her so so much more three-dimensional to me. Like the fact that she still shines above these problems that she has only endears her to me more. That is a very good way of putting it that, you know, she's still River. She's still exactly the character that we love. You know, we have to hold on to her. Yeah, and that's part of the love the River has, the Doctor has for River, is that River's kind of a pain in the Doctor's neck sometimes. And, <laughs> and like, she pokes and prods at him, and she sneaks liquor from his cabinet in the TARDIS, you know? And, like, <laughs> she steals the TARDIS when he's not around and goes off and does crimes, you know? She she, she bees gay and does crimes sometimes <laughs> while the Doctor's <laughs> not looking. Uh, and so, and, like, so the, I guess the fact that the way that she needles at him only provokes him loving her more like is part of the same thing with the audience like she's a bit of a poke to the audience but that just makes me like her more that's too perfect of a note so i think i'm going to end the conversation there riley thank you so much for coming on to talk about river song being your problematic fave uh tell us a little bit about uh where can we find you and what projects have you got coming up uh, right now, I actually, you can find me on Twitter at Riley J. Silverman, and I have a Facebook fan page you can check out as well. And right now, two big cool projects. The first one is that I just released 
Uh, I, I'm on a comedy special that was produced by Seed and Spark. Uh, Seed and Spark is a crowdsourcing website that specifically focuses on independent film and helping independent filmmakers get their funding for their lower projects. And they tend to do a lot to focus on like women and, and queer film like, filmmakers, although they do across the board, but that seems to be like a lot of what comes to them. Mm-hmm. And they have decided to start producing original content. And what they started with was this comedy special that I am in with five other comics and we recorded it and we all did about 10 to 15 minute sets and so that's it's called everything is fine and it's on seasonspark.com slash fine and you can check that out you can watch it as like an hour or so long special or you can watch individual episodes and so the episode has me being interviewed and it has a woman from a comedy comedy festival that I perform at talking about like her experience and watching me uh, go into comedy and like transitioning and stuff like that at her festival And then my set is on there as well. So you can watch that or you can watch just the uncut night of stand-up. So that's really cool. And then the other big thing is that I, we just announced this finally, is that I'm playing in a live stream D&D game on, uh, it's being produced by Saving Throws, but it's actually going to be on the D&D Twitch channel. And that is going to be launching on October 13th. So it's twitch.com slash D&D, I believe. And the show is called The Broken Pact. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Riley. Everyone, go follow her and go see all of her amazing comedy specials. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWho this week. Chip is on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord. And I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. You can also find us on Facebook. Christopher Breen wrote and produced our original theme music. David J. Lore wrote and produced our original podcast logo and avatar. And members of the Incomparable Network write and produce, well, no, they just keep us going. So if you'd like to become a member, we'd really appreciate it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. Please tell all your friends about us. And please tune in next week for This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.